This is Attorney General Insights from the DLA Piper Law Firm. I'm your host, Matt Den. Welcome to the first and hopefully not last issue of Attorney General Insights. This is Matt Den, a partner with the DLA Piper Law Firm and the former Attorney General of Delaware. And I'm very excited to have as our first guest, District of Columbia Attorney General Carl Racine, who is also the Vice President of the National Attorney General's Association. Attorney General Racine, welcome. Thank you very much for being with us. It's really great to see you, General Den. You are a a very modest man, but a man with a very impressive life story. So if it's okay with you, rather than my trying to drag it out of you, I'm going to do the 90-second Carl Racine biography. You came to the United States at the age of three, fleeing political repression in Haiti, and then you attended school here in the District of Columbia, excelled in college at the University of Pennsylvania, both academically and athletically as captain of the basketball team. That's right position? I played point guard. Everybody thought I shot too much as a point guard, but we won some games. And and some uh, championships, if I, if I read yeah, correctly. we had a wonderful uh, team, terrific players, student-athletes, and we were able to go to the NCAA tournament twice, which obviously was just an extraordinary experience. And then on to the University of Virginia Law School, and then to a really decorated career in both the public and private sector, working at the Public Defender's Office, the Clinton White House, and the Venable Firm, which is a national law firm. And in 2006, you became the managing partner nationally for the Venable Firm. And then in 2014, you decided to walk away from a phenomenally successful private sector career and become, at the age of 50, 51, if my math is right, right. uh, a first-time candidate for public office, entering a crowded and kind of feisty field of candidates to be D.C.'s first elected attorney general. You won, obviously. Was running for public office something that you had always – wanted to do or thought about doing? It's a great question. I've always wanted to be and have been in my life and professional career engaged in matters that concern the community as well as public service. So you mentioned I was a public defender and then, of course, went back into government to work at the Clinton White House. But as a D.C. resident, I felt as though I was uh, pulling up a little short, to be honest, in regards to making significant contribution to the district. And when this opportunity to run for attorney general came up, all the lights on in my mind were green for me to really go for it. And as you noted, we had a very competitive field, terrifically talented lawyers, and I had to learn a lot about the process of running for office, and I was very fortunate to have won. So you did win, and then you had to start the job, and you probably had some expectations about what the job would be like just based on reading about it, maybe talking to other folks who had done it. But I am guessing that actually getting to the office and doing the job that once the rubber hits the road, there may be some surprises. Can you talk about what surprised you the most about the job when you got there and actually began doing it? Sure. I remember well starting off in the transition period after having won the election and just being incredibly nervous and anxious and really wanting to have an immediate impact on the District of Columbia and really use the law to help D.C. residents. Our transition was a little different in that for the District of Columbia, I became the first elected attorney general. And so in a real way, the first independent attorney general in the District of Columbia. And so our first priority really was to establish and preserve and defend our independence. And it was incredibly important because early on we had a challenge 
to our independence, where indeed the executive office of the mayor sought to strip us of our independence. And so in the first four months, we were in a battle, if you will, a battle that I had not foreseen for the very independence that D.C. residents voted for. Fortunately, we were able to overcome that. And then we really began focusing on what our local initiatives would be. To the front would be juvenile justice reform, finding a way to impact the affordable housing crisis here in the District of Columbia, and then going about identifying excellent leaders and building strong sections and divisions that would bring results to D.C. residents. You mentioned the private sector experience. How big is the D.C. Attorney General's office compared to the Venable firm? It's actually smaller, but still sizable. So the Venable Law Firm, when I was the managing partner, oh, had between 600 and 700 lawyers and perhaps another 600 or 700 non-lawyer professionals throughout the country. The D.C. office is a large office, over 300 lawyers and, again, another 300 non-lawyer professionals. So it was a very, very large office with a broad scope of responsibility and certainly needed to hire really good people like my chief deputy, Natalie Ludaway, who you know well, to come in and to help organize and prioritize exactly what we would seek to establish in the next four years. There are some folks who have gone from the private sector to being state attorneys general. I don't know too many folks who have gone from being managing partners of a very large national firm to being state attorney general. Were there any skills that you feel like you gained from being the managing partner of a big national firm that have served you well in terms of coming in and running another really large state agency? Several skills. I mean, I think first and foremost, just the opportunity to have led a large law firm and to have made a lot of mistakes in my first years as the leader there. I was the managing partner for about six and a half years. And as you know, when you take on any new challenge, you're going to learn by doing. So, Having sort of gotten away with a few mistakes in the past, I think I was a better leader coming into the attorney general position. The big difference between the private sector, of course, and the public sector is that sometimes money can solve a lot of things in the private sector. If you've got folks who are not necessarily happy, need to be motivated or inspired, you can perhaps use money to do that. That's not the case in the public sector. As you know, we're always trying trying as best we can to use every resource we can and maximize that. So you've got to figure out different ways to motivate people and reward people. And so that was a different challenge that we've had to undertake. But I got to say that public servants, and Matt, you've been a public servant for a large part of your career, are people who by and large are committed to providing service to the residents of their jurisdictions. And I found an office with lawyers and non-lawyers who were very excited to serve in a way for an office that would be an independent office of attorney general. So I just I really want to thank my colleagues for their willingness to take me on as we moved into a different realm as an independent elected attorney general. You talked about campaigning and getting into a political race. And that was your first campaign. You've always seemed to me like an incredibly outgoing and social person and somebody who would really sort of thrive out on the campaign trail. But I have read a couple of articles while I was doing my homework for today that suggested that wasn't necessarily a natural environment for you when you first got into it. Could you talk about what you liked about running for office, what you didn't like about it? And you're not allowed to say 
fundraising for not liked part because that's <laughs> – we'll stipulate to that. Everybody hates the fundraising exactly. part. But, but the likes and dislikes in terms of the campaigning aspect of it. Sure. I'll tell you, one of the best pieces of advice that I got when I was considering a run for the office of attorney general was from a dear friend of mine who had actually run for – Commonwealth Attorney General in Virginia on two occasions and narrowly lost on both occasions. What he really asked me to consider is whether human beings, interaction with people exhausts me or whether it energizes me. And he suggested that if the answer is that people exhaust you, you don't want to run for office. And so in a way, you're right. I mean, I really do enjoy engaging and interacting and listening to people. So I loved campaigning and being out in the community. That to me was just you know, an incredible experience to get to know my neighbors in a deep way and try to understand how using the law, the Office of Attorney General, could benefit them. It is frustrating sometimes as an elected official to not be able to do everything that you'd like to do for someone who presents a complicated set of circumstances. As you know, as a lawyer, our toolbox is the law. And we can be creative in so many ways to help people in their issues. But there are some issues that we cannot tackle by virtue of a lawsuit. And so sometimes not being able to help people who really need it is one of the most frustrating aspects of the job, in addition to the fundraising fundraising. (laughs) conundrum. (laughs) So re-election campaign, you were elected in 2014. 2018 is coming down the road. By all accounts, you have a pretty clear path to getting reelected. And obviously, you you did get reelected. But I also had read that for personal reasons, you had at least tentatively decided, notwithstanding the fact that you were likely to have a pretty easy reelect, you had tentatively decided not to run for reelection and only later were persuaded to change your mind. Can you talk about that? Sure. And appreciate our personal relationship. And I know you've been supportive of me over the years. Politicians, elected officials are people too. And they have families and issues that residents also confront. And so the reason why I took a pause on whether or not to run for reelection was related to a big stroke and illness that my mother confronted. And I really needed to focus in uh, with my sister as to how best we would be able to manage my mother's care and to give her the best shot at recovery as we possibly could. And I got to say, we learned so much about what a lot of Americans and residents of our jurisdiction go through when they have a loved one who all of a sudden is sick and the systems and insurance and the like eventually run out. So that was a huge concern, and I wanted to put my family first over the job and really needed to figure out whether I could do both. Fortunately, because of my sister and other family members, we were able to understand all that we all needed to do to support each other. And as it turned out, fortunately, I was able to run for reelection. And Matt, you'll appreciate this. There's an old adage about running that says the best way to run is either scared because it's tough and you got to work hard to win or unopposed. Uh, And uh, (laughs) fortunately, I ran unopposed. And uh, that was a godsend uh, in order for us to be able to make sure mom was okay. Mm -hmm. You've worked on a lot of high profile cases. A lot of them have received national media attention. One of the things that I think some people 
don't understand about attorney general's office is that some of the most difficult decisions that get made are discretionary decisions that have to get made about individual cases affecting individual people, the kinds of decisions that frontline prosecutors have to make every day. But another cliche, the easy ones don't get to your desk. So I would imagine that in your job, part of what you're dealing with is the most complicated or the most sticky issues of prosecutorial discretion that come up. And for me, at least when I was doing the job, that was the toughest part of the job for me because obviously those decisions are just enormously impactful on a number of different people's lives that are involved in the case. Can you talk about how much of your job involves decisions like that and how you sort of work your way through dealing with those kinds of decisions? Sure. There are any number of extraordinarily important, complex, and difficult decisions that come to the Office of Attorney General. And you're so right. Prosecutors have a significant amount of discretion as to how they want to uh, proceed on a given case. Let me give you an example of a tough, tough matter. And so my first year, within the first nine months, the District of Columbia had uh, three adverse judgments against it. And in those cases, the suits involved three men who were wrongfully convicted in each case of murder and had spent, I'm pretty sure in each case, over 20 years each in jail. And so the question was, to what extent would we continue the defense of the case in the face of certification of innocence by a D.C. judge and a ruling that put the District of Columbia on the line to the tune of many, 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 many millions of dollars. So what is the right thing? Do we fight for the taxpayer and try as best we can to really whittle away the damages that the judges imposed? Or do we try as best we can to reach a reasonable settlement? Because, of course, you can't give people 20 years back when they were wrongly convicted. And then what do you do going forward? Do you put in a process where perhaps there's a streamlined way of resolving these things in a way that's both fair to the person who's wrongly convicted as well as to taxpayers? So we did all three. We decided to really work real hard to settle those cases and settle them in a way that was fair for the wrongly convicted individual and for the taxpayer. And then we move forward to legislate a process that would be far more streamlined, would cause less litigation, and therefore would be less expensive, if you will, for D.C. taxpayers down the road. But reaching all of those decisions were quite complicated and hard. Also, the decision as to whether or not to criminally prosecute an individual is an incredibly difficult decision. Of course, the victim's input is incredibly important. So in the juvenile justice realm, where the office plays in a big, big way, we have sought to bring juvenile justice reform to the District of Columbia, and we've sought to bring different ways of prosecution to D.C., one way that we – one innovation, if you will, that we've really pressed hard is restorative justice. And that's a process where we actually take a lot of time and energy and effort to connect with the victim and to find out whether the victim wants to proceed in a non-traditional way, namely interfacing with the perpetrator. Those are hard calls. And so when we moved to a restorative justice model, we made sure that the fundamental decision as to whether to proceed with restorative justice was up to the victim. 
And if the victim wanted to do it and it was the right kind of case, then our facilitators would go forward. Got to say that we've had 104 restorative justice conferences, 95 percent of the participants, that's the victims as well as the offenders, report that they would go through that process again, that that process can be preferable to an adversarial system where sometimes victims feel like their point of view or perspective doesn't matter and at the end is just an end of a revolving door of justice. So bringing in criminal justice reform as a prosecutor is not an easy thing to do. It's hard to bring it inside culturally and change the approach. And then it's also a difficult sell sometimes to the public that still understandably wants to have justice meted out in a firm and strong way for all offenders. So being a reformist in that way has been challenging, but I think we're doing the right thing. I want to come back to that because I know you've been a lot of folks around the country have been looking at what you're doing and following some of it. I've had the chance, and I know you have too, to talk to people who did the attorney general's job 15 years ago, 20 years ago, and it seems like it is a very different job today than it was then in large part because state AGs have become involved in so many issues of national prominence and you have been front and center on a lot of these issues partly because you're the District of Columbia Attorney General and partly because you've just taken a very affirmative and assertive role on some of these issues. This is probably like asking a parent to pick their favorite child (laughs) but sitting here today at least to date, what do you think looking back will be the national issue that where you feel like it's been most impactful that you've stepped in and taken a, a leadership role nationally? I think just a couple issues really I'd highlight. First is uh, willingness to fight the president and the administration on matters of immigration. It's my perspective that the administration and President Trump are really seeking to use their immigration policies to really strengthen their political base without regard to the Constitution of the United States. And so we fought the president in regards to the Muslim travel ban. We fought the president with respect to temporary protective status for residents of a whole bunch of countries who fled those countries that were in dire circumstances, and those circumstances continue And the president wanted to deport those folks. So we fought that. We also fought the citizenship question before the 2020 census and prevailed at the United States Supreme Court. So those immigration battles, I think, are important. I think they will really stand the test of time. America is a country of immigrants. At times, we've had aspects of our history that we're not proud of. I think that in time, 10, 20 years, I think uh, we'll regret The part of history that we're going through now with the president changing asylum laws that, again, I think are well-founded in the Constitution. The fact that it seems as though on immigration, there are winners and losers, and the losers tend to be people of color, brown and black. So I'm happy and pleased that so many AGs, mostly on the Democratic side, have joined in those battles. You had mentioned that some of these issues, that the moving forces behind them are largely from one political party. You've, among the many unusual things about your background, uh, been able to kind of navigate the current partisan environment pretty well. You've, I think, one of the only folks who have been both the head of one of the partisan attorney general organizations. You were the chairman of the Democratic Attorney General's Association and then gone on to become 
the vice president of the National Association of AGs, which is a bipartisan group. How have you managed to be able to be front and center in some of the state-level partisan political races and at the same time be able to maintain relationships that you have to have with your Republican colleagues to be the head of the national organization? I think the way I've been fortunate to do that is just to be straight up, upfront, transparent around my political views, my legal views, and then not let those positions get in the way of working cooperatively with other state AG who may see it differently. They may be Republicans on issues that the country really needs us to lean in on. I'll give you an example. Criminal justice reform, for example, the First Step Act, that's an act that the president signed into law earlier this year. Well, that legislation was very much on the ropes and is unclear as to whether the president would get the kind of support that he wanted. A bipartisan effort of attorney general really leaned in hard and pushed and actually worked with the White House to move that First Step Act forward. And so I was working hard with uh, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, Florida Republican Attorney General Pam Bondi. I should note that Ken from Texas is Republican. And we put aside our differences with respect to immigration policy and the like to move progressive needed reform in the criminal justice realm together. So there's always an opportunity to push issues that Americans care about that would be better for this country forward, even as we're having very, very strident disputes about other issues. I want to circle back, if I could, to the juvenile justice issue, which I know has been very much front and center for you. You mentioned the restorative justice effort. I also know from talking to you that you were very successful in persuading the folks who actually make financial decisions in the district to make some investments on the juvenile justice front, which I think is an aspect of it that sometimes not given enough attention. Could you talk about some of the areas where you've actually been able to get the district to invest in that area? Sure. And I've got to give credit, of course, to the D.C. Council and ultimately the mayor for agreeing with the advocacy. In D.C., what we found in the area of juvenile justice is that so many kids in the District of Columbia, particularly kids who reside in underserved areas, areas where there's a high degree of poverty, where there's community violence, where there's underemployment, where the schools are not as good as in other areas, a lot of those kids end up finding their way into the criminal justice system. There are two approaches. You could lock them all up for the maximum period possible and hope somehow, some way that that scared straight tactic, if you will, has an impact on them going forward. Or you can devote monies and resources to try to understand the level of anxiety, trauma, stress, pain and lack of opportunity engagement that these kids are going through. If you try the latter approach and you actually have some very good services, mentoring, family therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, and other experientially based kind of treatments, taking a kid to a museum for the first time in their life, for example, then you have a chance, I think, of breaking the cycle of a kid coming into the criminal justice system. So we advocated fiercely for resources, not so much for our office, but for the programs that these kids could rely on in order to break the cycle. 
And as I said, I'm really grateful that uh, D.C. elected officials have supported it. When we got there, one program in particular had been funded to the level of about a half a million dollars. That program is now at $8 million, and it's providing great services to kids who can actually break the cycle of violence. That's terrific. I know that you are on the run today, but I can't let you go without asking about the future. Let me ask you about the future. What, uh, <laughs> what is the uh, – you read all kinds of things. Carl Racine, mayor of Washington, D.C., Carl Racine, United States attorney general. Some of those things obviously not entirely up to you necessarily. Sure. But just in terms of where you would like to see things unfold down the road, what would you like to see yourself doing to the extent that you can talk about it right. five, ten years down the road? You know, I, I'm just humbled and privileged to be alive and to certainly be able to work with my sister and try to get my mom back to healthier. So that's job one. Three and a half more years of office as attorney general, there's a lot that we want to accomplish. We want to make D.C. a safer environment for young people. We want young people to have a better opportunity to get themselves on the right track. Certainly in the AG world, there are a plethora of issues, and I know you're in the private sector and you're seeing those issues from the other side of the table there. But if you look at the technology companies, right, and those platforms and the way they're impacting society, their privacy issues, their issues around how those platforms and others are using all of our personal information, their competitive issues, all those issues are incredibly interesting to me. So I think in the next three and a half years, focusing deeply on those and then letting the chips fall where they may is where I want to be. Well played. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Matt. General, this has been terrific. I really appreciate your time and we all really appreciate the job that you're doing for the District of Columbia. It's a pleasure to watch you from uh, an hour and a half up north. Well, let me just say that I miss you in the room. You've got your successor, Kathy Jennings, is uh, really doing a terrific job. And she also is a partner in the criminal justice reform. But Matt, you're the epitome of an individual who approaches things in a bipartisan, let's get things done basis. And we could use a bit more of that throughout the country. Appreciate it, sir. And agreed that the Delaware office is in good hands. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Take care. This has been Attorney General Insights from the DLA Piper Law Firm. This is your host, Matt Den. Thanks very much for listening.